Hey everybody, welcome back to A Thousand Names for God. I'm your host, Rick Alexander. As always, if you're getting anything from this show, it would mean the world to me if you would share it with really anybody that you think the message may resonate with, whether that is your family, your friends, or your social media following. At the end of the day, it just really helps to get the word out there to more and more people, which allows me to continue to put out more and more content for free. Additionally, there are a couple of ways to interact with me. I've got, I think, one one one-on-one coaching spot open. If you're interested in any of these ideas, really, and want to work through them in your own life or want to gain some perspective on some transition or something that you're going through, the one-on-one container is really good for that. I'll link it up in the show notes of this episode. Also, I don't know when you're hearing this, but if it's before the 14th, you can sign up for Danielle and I's next cohort of our book club. We're going to be exploring He and She, which are written by Robert Johnson, who's a Jungian analyst, and he uses myth to talk about masculine and feminine psychology. And so he's really one of the forefathers of the work that I'm doing in school and what I'm studying. Uh, You don't have to have any of the book read by the 14th, so if you do want to join... Um, You can pay whatever you want. I'll link that up in the show notes as well. And we're going to kick that off on Sunday, the 14th in the afternoon. Um, And then finally, also, I have this lecture series that I've been working really hard on. And I'm going to release it. I originally said in the fall. It looks like it's going to be early winter. As of right now, scheduled to record that lecture series on the like 27th, 28th of November. So right after Thanksgiving here in the States. And likely it will be a few weeks after that, however long it takes us to edit. So maybe early December we'll be releasing that five-part lecture series. And what I'm going to be doing with that lecture series is exploring the psychological and spiritual implications of transformation. So when we go through a transformation, what is it that we feel? And when we feel what we feel, what is the psychological mechanism that's at work? Now, understanding these things can do a couple of things for you. One, it can help you categorize where the hell you're at in life, right? Anytime you can add context to what you're going through, meaning is very close to that. Meaning is what you might think about as the ultimate order drawn from chaos. So when you're in chaos, there's no meaning, usually no meaning to be found. And so if you can start to add some context, some framework to the chaos that you're feeling internally, then you're on the road to making meaning out of your experience and being able to understand it better. So I'm going to record that for healers and people in the helping profession who are interested in the psychological and spiritual transformation that's taking place so that they can help walk other people through it and gain a better idea of what their clients and they themselves have gone through. Um, And then I would also say if you're someone that's just interested in that kind of work or interested in your own personal transformation, If you're listening to this podcast, you're likely one of those people. And so I will put a sign up in the show notes of this episode. And everybody that gets their name on that list before I release the lecture series will get a discount on the series itself. So really excited. I've been working really hard and I can't wait to put that out. It's been a while since I've really released anything outside of a podcast. So I just spent a couple of weeks traveling. I went to England to interview Richard Rudd, the founder of the Gene Keys, and then to Georgia to interview Nako, the musician. So the Special Forces experience, which I serve as the chief growth operator for, I'm sure you've heard of it if you've been following me for a while, um, we put on an event every year called The Process. It's previously taken place only in Canada this year. We actually have one in the spring in the United States. If you're interested in that, just hit me up and I can 
point you toward the signups or the it's an application process actually and they're putting a documentary together right now on the concept of post-traumatic growth so how can we go through trauma and rather than leave it with a diagnosis of a stress disorder how might we experience trauma in a way categorize it mentally in a way and go through it in a way that allows us to become more of who we're here to be that actually allows us to grow into a whole person and so I was conducting and helping them conduct interviews for that documentary and I went to England and uh, interviewed Richard Rudd and most of you know that I follow a contemplative path and the reason I follow a contemplative path is because it felt like the only path that I could commit to with my whole heart you know Often in life, there are these moments that we're sitting somewhere and we're looking and we're nodding our heads and we're agreeing, but there's a percentage of us, maybe it's small, that doesn't quite buy it. You know, this was me in church, actually. So like, I grew up in church. I was like a three day a week, you know, I was born into this sort of spiritual path and there was so much that that gave me, gave me a reverence for life that quite honestly, I noticed a lot of my friends didn't really seem to share And there was a lot of fruit. It gave me a lot of discernment and wisdom even at a very young age. And it also gave me a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. And there were parts of myself that I could not accept because they fell outside of what was considered acceptable by this spiritual path. And most of my adult life has been learning how to honor those parts of myself that don't fit. You know, I felt the same thing. I went to seminary to study theology and... There were parts of myself, I'm like, I love this. I love almost all of this. But there's a part of me that wants to honor something else, something that doesn't quite fit within the doctrine. And again, the contemplative path doesn't ask you to, doesn't ask you to do anything, actually. You just return to silence. Day after day, you return to silence. You bring in scriptures. You can bring in poetry. You can bring in whatever it feels inspiring to you but you're always just returning to the silence. You're creating space in your life. You're creating a pause. And when you create a pause, that creates space. And within that space, you gain agency. Not just agency over yourself, but actually you don't feel as victimized by time. Because for most of my life, and maybe you can relate, as I think it's somewhat cultural, we tend to live our lives as if we are victims to time. You know, it's like there's never enough time. There's always more to do. And the contemplative path has really helped me to drive a wedge into that mentality and to start creating a bit of space so that I can exist there. And what's interesting is I don't want to share a lot from that interview, but the thing I do want to share is that Richard Rudd himself, he's one of the founders of the Gene Keys, or he's the founder of the Gene Keys. And the Gene Keys is... It's very hard to describe. It's something like a spiritual system. It's partly based on the cosmos and on the stars, and it's partly based on the I Ching, which is like a Chinese system of divination, essentially. And those two things together create the gene keys. And what the gene keys are is they tell you a bit about your own gene keys. So your shadow states and your gift states and how to move from one to the other. And really what they are is just contemplations. They give you things to consider about yourself, which will, over time, through contemplation, lead you to insight, which is going to lead you into deeper understanding of who you are. And Richard Rudd actually wrote a book called The Art of Contemplation, which I'll link up in the show notes of this episode in case somebody's interested in it. I'll link the gene keys up as well if you're interested in that. It's a very complex system, 
but worth spending some time learning and understanding uh, if you feel drawn to it. And one of the things that's really interesting is because it's a contemplative path, I got to see somebody who is much further down the road than I am in this contemplative path. And that was really beneficial because, you know, there are shifts that you experience on the spiritual path, which I've talked about on here often. But when you experience those shifts, they don't always stay. You know, they're not abiding. Sometimes I think like if I could just live my life with the knowing that I have when I'm deep in prayer, deep in meditation or deep in contemplation, that would probably solve a lot of the you know, excess problems that I create on top of my problems. But it's just hard to be faithful to what your open heart knows. Because as soon as you go into the world and you face harsh and you face criticism, the first thing the the heart wants to do is close off. And the contemplative path is about returning to the space, surrendering, opening the heart and surrendering, surrendering to silence, surrendering to the wisdom of the present moment. And so... The reason I put that out there is because if you get the opportunity to seek out somebody who is further down the path than you are, whether that's a coach or a mentor or a soul guide or a pastor or a counselor or therapist or a mentor or, and the list goes on and on, just find somebody who is a bit further down the path that you're walking and that way you can not only do you get to see like, oh, it is possible, you know, these things that I fleetingly glimpsed in the depth of my own prayer, it's possible to live in that way and to stabilize that and to have that spirit sort of abiding in me. But it's also revitalizing, you know, it also made me like really love the path that I'm on and and sort of want to double down on my own efforts toward the contemplative path. And so that was just a really beneficial experience. And I say that because it's very hard to do on your own. You know, a lot of the things we're talking about are very hard to do on your own. But if, if you're someone like me who is called to the in-between spaces, it's even harder because there isn't a road. You know, this is the thing about the world's great religions is that they give a very clear-cut path to walk down. The difficulty is that you might not all fit in that path, right? And so if you're, you're like me, you're kind of called to the in-between spaces. And something that I think I'm, I'm really passionate about, really, really passionate about, is that nobody gets to have the final say in God, right? Nobody gets to say, this is what God's like, and this is not what God's like. Those are all proclamations of ego. Those are anthropomorphizations of God itself, right? So these are, these are looking for human characteristics within God so that you can usually inflate your sense of self or make yourself feel safe or protected, And I'm really passionate about really helping people understand that their image of God is just that. It's an image of God. When we talk about God, the word about means around. We're talking around. We're not, we cannot reduce God to a static thing and think that that is going to be synonymous with God itself. And so if you're called to perhaps there's a part of you like me that grew up with a spiritual path and knows that there's something, you know, it's like, most, I think what most people settle for is like agnostic or like I believe in God, but I don't believe in, you know, whatever doctrine that they just can't believe in, that they can't accept for whatever reason. And all of those people are in the in-between spaces. But I think one of the things I like about the contemplative path and one of the things that I want this podcast specifically to, to do 
is to say you can be in the in-between spaces and you can still seek out the ultimate good. You can still seek out love. You can still seek out God. You are still accepted even in the in-between spaces, right? No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what parts of yourself you're unable to reconcile, all of it belongs. And if you find yourself called to those in-between spaces or just existing in them by happenstance, it's really beneficial to find other people, again, who are a little bit further down the path. I think it's something that I'm realizing in my own walk that I need to get a little better at seeking out. Another thing that I've been sitting with is, well, Afghanistan, right? What a shit show that was and is. There's so much atrocity that's going to take place, that's going to continue to take place in that country um, that I think we're all complicit with in one way or another, even if you think you had nothing to do with it. Like we're all authoring energy into our world. We're all accepting certain things. We're all living in certain ways. And I've been off social media for a while. I plan on going back on. You know, the problem is every time I go to go back on, there's another part of me that thinks like, yeah, but do you deserve that? Do you really want that? Do you really want to be thinking in that way? And then I think no, and then I don't go back on. I say all of that just to say I may go back on, but part of why I got off in the first place is because I was feeling like my thinking was very fragmented. Like there's so, you know, we're, we're exposed to so much difficulty. By the way, very little of it that you can actually do anything about. And it's all demanding our attention, you know? And the thing about... The thing about the media, right, is that they use things like fear, and I know we all know this, but the intensity of emotion modulates your attention, right? So this is why, you know, if you stub your toe, your whole world gets reduced to the size of the toe that you stubbed. It's not that you don't care about other things in the world, it's that right in that moment, all of your attention has been modulated to account for the pain that you're experiencing and feeling. And fear does that same thing to us. And so what often, you know, all these algorithms, what what they're doing is that they're pulling at our emotions so that they can modulate and demand our attention because without attention, they have nothing. And that's fine, right? That's the game that they're playing and that's cool. But I noticed in myself that as I would give into that, my thinking was becoming much more fragmented and I was feeling less like a whole person and I had see how much of this I want to actually talk about on here but in the last month I had a a low point that was as low as it's been for me like it was very very low and uh in that low point it's very interesting. So I just stopped working with a coach because I'm starting with an analyst soon. So I have that like gap, you know, in between. And right as I went into that gap of not working with a coach anymore and not yet working with my analyst, I just had a couple of things in my life that I was really planning on that I had put a lot of my identity in. That's my first problem. Fall through, not work out. And in the wake of that, I didn't, I didn't know what to feel. You know, I just felt negative emotion, so to speak. I felt depression. I felt angst. And I also felt confusion and like, what the, what the hell am I doing here? You know, these moments in life that like just rock us and we're like, what the hell is all of this for? Well, it was one of those moments. And as I was sitting with that, it probably lasted about a week. And then I started, I redove into the Bhagavad Gita 
one of the things I do with my contemplative path is I let my soul choose what scriptures, what poetry, what words I bring into that experience. Because it's really more about the silence, but the scripture that you bring in tends to guide your thinking. And I've spent a good year with the wisdom books of the Bible, with Psalms, and with a bit of the New Testament too, actually. So I've been in the Bible for a good year with my contemplative path, and I was feeling this pull to go back into the Gita. The Bhagavad Gita is a let me see how, how the best way to explain this, because I'm going to talk about it a little bit today. The Bhagavad, what the Bhagavad Gita is, is a conversation between Arjuna and Krishna. And Krishna is something like, and I know it's about to get heretical, but something akin to the Christ figure in the New Testament. And what I mean by that is he's sort of the personification of the Lord that stands in front of the God Most High, right? See, it's very difficult to get your mind around the infinite. And so we have a particular which helps us relate to what the infinite is like, right? This is Jesus, right? This is Buddha. This is Muhammad. We have all of these particulars that, that allow us to resonate and see ourselves within, right? Because we're human. And if we don't do that, we're going to anthropomorphize the infinite anyway. So this is a conversation between Krishna and Arjuna, and I used it as my contemplative path. And as I did, I felt a bit of light start sort of breathing into the depression that I was feeling. And I got further, as I went further and further in this path, you know, I, I committed to just going back to the Gita whenever I felt myself getting pulled back toward toxic patterns. And it's a really arduous way to go about behavior change because you have to return to the silence when you don't want to over and over. But it's also quite effective, I found, for, for kicking habits. Um, in any case, as I was doing that, a lot of the Gita is about renunciation. And renunciation is not apathy. Renunciation is about committing to becoming the witness of your own life. You know, in part, you can't change what you don't know about. So you have to become aware first. And if you're not aware, you can't change anything. And so the very first step of any sort of spiritual system has to be becoming aware of your patterns, becoming aware of what pulls you off center, becoming aware of what fragments your thinking. And as I became aware of those, I felt the need to start cutting them out of my life. And, you know, social media just happened to be one of those things at that moment. At that moment, I really needed that. And as I began to renounce, I started to feel a newfound lightness and a newfound openness and a newfound trust. And as I started to trust, I realized I, I talk about trust in my content all the time, but it's, it's a lot easier to talk about than live out, right? Let's be honest. Um, one of the things I always talk about trust is, do you trust the fact that your life is giving you what you need? Now, I don't even know, I used to say giving you what you need to grow, but maybe you don't need growth right now. You know, maybe you need to go backward into the depression. Maybe you need to go backward into the pit of despair because that's where your answers are. Maybe there's something about yourself that you're ignoring that's only going to be found when you go into that pit, right? I don't know. But in any case, can you trust that your life is presenting you with what you need to become the person that you're here to become? to live the life that you're here to live. And what that might mean is that you have to trust hell, right? When you're in hell, I mean, like in a, just our life turns to hell as it does from time to time, 
can you trust that that too has something of value to you? That it doesn't need to be excluded or bypassed or escaped from or ignored. And so I began to trust that this dark moment in my life was actually showing me something really massive. And then I then I kind of did. It kind of showed me something that I had been holding on to, a story that I had been holding on to that was causing me a lot of pain and really keeping me from becoming the person that I think I'm here to become, specifically the person that my fiance deserves. And, you know, as I reflect on that time, now as I've sort of come out of it and have been out of it for a little bit, but as I reflect on that time, I realize and can't ignore the immense value that that difficult time brought into my life that it actually gave me. And the reason I'm sharing that is because I never would have chosen it. You see, I never would have chosen to go through this depression. I never would have chosen for what I wanted to happen to fall through. I never would have chosen any of that. And yet, despite all of that, it turned out to be exactly what I needed. And so then I got to thinking about Afghanistan. Now, I was in the military. And when I was in the military, I really worked through a lot of my adverse emotions about what I thought we were doing overseas. Like I kind of came face to face with it and had to really reconcile that what I had joined for and what I thought we were doing is not exactly what we were doing and what I had joined for. And then, you know, your values shift. And then my values became more about the people and whatever. In any case, I ended up getting out. But I thought I had worked through the fact that I think we're doing a pretty frivolous thing and really just causing a whole bunch of destruction and chaos overseas for not a lot of good reason. I thought I had worked through that. But then when this Afghanistan thing came up and I started really sitting with it, I started to get pretty, just pretty pissed off about the lack of leadership, about all these things that I saw, finite I, me, saw as a problem. But you know, If I'm being 100% honest with myself, I don't know exactly what the world needs. See, I don't know that it's not perfect. Now, I understand that it's hard to make a case for the despair and the difficulty that we see in the world for being perfect. I don't want to make that case. What I want to make the case for here is that I don't know. Because in my own life, I would have never chosen the difficulties that I actually really, really needed if I'm being honest. And so how do I know that the world isn't getting exactly what it needs? And now further, when I try to manipulate my life to get what I think I need, often I just create more problems, right? So anytime that I'm, anytime that we, all any of us, veer off of reality, so tell ourselves a story that's different from reality, we're going to suffer, right? And so oftentimes when we're going through highs and lows in life, we suffer because we have an ideal that we shouldn't be going through the low that we're going through at this very moment. So not only are we experiencing negative emotion, but the thought that we shouldn't be experiencing negative emotion is adding to our anguish and adding to our grief and adding to what is keeping us in negative emotion, ironically enough. And I think it's obviously easier said than done when it comes to accepting all of the difficulties of your life, but it, but it is the work, right? Because you can be free by trying to manipulate your life in order to, so that the conditions are such that make you happy and give you what you want. And those conditions, because they're 
because they're of this impermanent nature that this world is in, are always on borrowed time. And so the conditions are never going to last. Your ideals are never going to be met for any length of time. I mean, even if it's six months, even if it's one year, even if it's five years, you're going to go through negative emotion again because everything in this world is impermanent. Now, when we go through negative emotion, if we can accept that too, it might have something to show us. But if we spend our time trying not to feel or feeling as though we shouldn't feel what we feel, now we have new problems on top of just the ebb and flow of life. And so what I noticed is that with Afghanistan and with you know, all of the things we see on social media that are going on in the world, the pandemic and how people are treating other people, you know, all of that, my inclination is that I want to change it. I want to manipulate it. I want it to be different. But if I'm being honest with myself, do I know that that's best? Because if I look at my own history, I certainly wouldn't have wanted the difficulties that I went through, but I sure as hell needed them. And so now I'm in this point where I reach this sort of recognition that I can't do anything about it. But not only that, I don't know that I need to. Whatever condition it's in is likely that way because other people thought that they knew what the world needed. They knew what was best. But most of those people, if they're being 100% honest with themselves, don't understand their own complexities. And that's the situation that I was in. Right? Like I don't understand my own complexities enough to know what experiences I need and what experiences I don't. And so how could I possibly know that for the world, which is an infinite number of variables outside of myself. And with that recognition, you start to ease up a little bit. You start to realize, maybe I don't need to keep such a tight grasp on thinking the world needs to be different. Maybe I don't know what's best after all. And as I sat with that, and as that that realization actually came to me, it wasn't just something I said like a platitude, but something I surrendered into, I started to experience this weight lift off me, this sort of freedom that is pretty unlike other things that I've experienced in the world. It was a sort of, it was the freedom to not have to change. It was the freedom to not have to do anything differently. It was the freedom to not have to manipulate or have to control. And in the West, you know, most of us are taught, I mean, if you look at anxiety levels right now, right? Like I don't know a single person that's not like, that doesn't feel as though they have some level of anxiety. And I think a lot of that, the reason anxiety is growing year over year is because we're taught to control a world that is profoundly uncontrollable, right? We're always in a situation we can't control. You Always that's the case, right? You're going to die. Do something about that. Everybody you love is going to die. Do something about that, right? And so perhaps the problem is not trying to control what we can't control. Perhaps the problem is trying to relate to what we can't control better, not allowing what we can't control to pull us off of center, to make our thinking fragmented, to give our attention to all of the fragmented pieces. Maybe we need to give our attention to the one, to wholeness, and then maybe we become whole. I think that's part of the case that I've been making in this podcast all along. But I just wanted to share that insight because if you watch media, if you turn on social media, I mean, if you even have a conversation with people right now about the state of the world, it's not good. It's not a good place. It seems like it's getting worse and worse every day. And maybe it is. And maybe that's true. But maybe it needs it. I don't know. How could I? I don't even understand what I need, right? And this is the point. Um, and if you can find that place in yourself of really realizing, man, even the downs, I never would have chosen them. But something in my soul knows that I did in fact need them. 
And if you can come to that place, maybe you can give a little bit more quarter to the rest of the world, you know, give a little bit more leeway to the world when it doesn't meet your expectations, when it doesn't show up exactly as you would like it to. And this realization has really caused this interesting surrender experiment that I'm in right now, where like even with my trip to England, you know, this is kind of nuts, but the way that my PhD program works is we have eight hours of lecture like once a month for each class. So I had eight hours of lecture Friday and then I had coaching calls after that. And then I had eight hours of lecture on Saturday. Then I went to the airport and took a red eye to England. And then we rented a car, drove four hours, saw Stonehenge. That was crazy. And then I got to the hotel, checked in and had 10 minutes until my next eight hour lecture started. And then I got a couple hours of sleep and then I went on with the Richard Wright interview. And, you know, something like that, a travel situation like that, all this stuff I have to do, my mind just wanted to panic, just wanted to lose it, just wanted to, like, try to start controlling things I can't control. And just with this recognition that I don't know what's best for me, I just started to surrender. It was like, well, if I miss it, I miss it. If I miss class, I miss class. I mean, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm traveling to England. And with that recognition, I felt this new sort of grace kind of come into my life and you know, we're going to go through the ups and the downs either way. Now, you can go through them wishing them to be different, right? We can argue with reality, and that's what we're doing, right? When we're going through a low, and we don't want to be going through a low, we are arguing with reality. We're telling life it should be different. But life never agreed to our expectations, something I say on here often, right? And the reason I think I say it often is I was trying to remind myself of it so that I could start actually living it. And I feel like I realize it's not something you do, it's something you surrender into. It's something you give up doing. You give up manipulating. You give up trying to create your freedom by getting the conditions that you find acceptable. And then you just let your life unfold as the adventure that it is. I mean, what else could it be? That's what we're here for. So something that's been guiding my thoughts on this is the Bhagavad Gita. And so I wanted to talk today about the way of love. And we're 30 minutes in here, so I won't spend a ton of time on this. But I'm going to read chapter 12 of the Gita, and it's called The Way of Love. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the things that I've learned in this process. So Krishna says, Those who set their hearts on me and worship me with unfailing devotion and faith are more established in yoga. Remember, worship is attention, right? We give our attention to something and we become like that thing. So if we worship money, we become a hollow shell of ourselves because it's something subhuman, right? If we worship something uh, whole, we become whole, etc., etc. As for those who seek the transcendental reality without name, without form, contemplating the unmanifested, beyond the reach of thought and of feeling, with their senses subdued and mind serene, and striving for the good of all beings, they too will verily come unto me. Yet hazardous and slow is the path to the unrevealed, difficult for physical creatures to tread, but they for whom I am the supreme goal who do all the work renouncing self for me and meditate on me with single-hearted devotion, these I will swiftly rescue from the fragment cycle of birth and death, for their consciousness has entered into me. All right. Now what Krishna is saying there is that when you think of God, what God is is the unmanifested. God is the absolute with a capital A or reality with a capital R. In any case, God is no thing, right? This is 
this is what's this is why idolatry can be a problem, right? If you worship a thing, then that's that's subhuman because you're not a thing, right? God's not a thing. God is no thing. And so the problem is that worshiping something that has no form is very difficult because you are an embodied being. You're not just a spiritual creature. You are a creature with a form. You are finite. So often what happens, all of the world's great religions, what they're doing is they're offering a particular for the so that you can relate to the finite. Do you see? Because you're a particular, and so it helps to have a particular to relate to the finite. That's Jesus, right? That's Buddha. And so having that, having a finite that represents the transcendent other is how we get to it, right? And so that's what he's saying. It's Krishna for the, for the Hindu faith. Krishna is one of them. And so by devoting yourself to the particular that represents the infinite, you ascend to that level, right? You ascend to that level of consciousness, essentially. And there's a whole bunch wrapped in here about birth and death and cycles of birth and death. But, you know, when it comes to reincarnation, I really love the Zen teaching on reincarnation. And I can't remember exactly what school of Zen it is. Because you know how, like, in Christianity, there's like 30,000 sects of Christians? Like, there's different, all of these different denominations. Well, Buddhism is even some, like more fragmented than that. So, anyway, there's one Zen tradition that talks about reincarnation, not as a literal thing, but as the reality in which you and I find ourselves in. And so what they say is, if you think that you're the same person that started listening to this podcast 35 minutes ago, you are mistaken, right? Because what happens is that as we go through life, we're constantly dying and we're constantly being reborn. Every new moment presents a new opportunity. But we're so conditioned by thinking that we're the person that was in the past that we forego the opportunity to make a new choice. So we're not free to make a new choice because we're conditioned by who we've been. And so just as a as a contemplative exercise, realizing that you are going to be a new person who finishes listening to this podcast and the person that started. But if you don't accept that, you say, no, I'm not, I'm the same person. It's like, well, then that's those are the chains you're wearing. All right. Still your mind in me, jumping back in here. Still your intellect in me, and without doubt, you will be united with me forever. If you cannot still your mind in me, learn to do so through the regular practice of meditation. If you lack the will for such self-discipline, engage yourself in my work, for selfless service can lead you at last to complete fulfillment. If you are unable to do even this, surrender yourself to me, disciplining yourself and renouncing the results of all your actions. Better indeed is knowledge than mechanical practice. Better than knowledge is meditation, but better still is surrender of attachment to results because there follows immediate peace. This is like the next big thing that I wanted to talk about that has been such a, such a profound turning point in my own life, which is the renunciation of the result. You have a right to the work that you do in this world, but you do not have a, res- a right to the result. And the more you try to manipulate the fruits of your actions and take them for yourself, the more you're going to sap the joy from the experience. Like I noticed in my writing, for example, I was trying to write and then I would get angry because what I was writing was not exactly representative to what I thought it should be. The moment I gave up on whatever it is and just let myself do the thing, I started writing at a level that I was like, oh, I didn't even think I was capable of this, 
right? And so there's a there's this like paradoxical nature of reality. This is something that was really influential on Gandhi actually in his life is that he recognized like I don't I don't know if what I'm doing is going to do anything. I don't know if this revolution is going to to actually work. What I can do is the next harmonious thing. And so here's a reflective for question for you. You can get caught up in trying to control the amount of money you make and trying to control what you get from what you do and trying to control how other people perceive you. Or you can ask yourself, what is the next harmonious thing? And go and do that. And if you do the next harmonious thing, and then you reflect, and then you go do the next harmonious thing, and then you reflect, and you go do the next harmonious thing, and then you reflect, the results will take care of themselves. And why the results will take care of themselves is because you're going to be giving the entirety of who you are to that thing. Like, if you are working, and part of you is thinking, like, it's like being in school, right? Part of you is in school, and then the other part of is thinking, like, should I be here? Should I even be in this program? And so you're fragmented. And so you'll spend the entire experience sapping the joy from it. Just be where you are and do the next harmonious thing. That's what I would say is being put forth here in these pages. And I love this idea of better still is surrender of attachment to results because there follows immediate peace. That's what I've experienced in my own life. The moment I give up trying to control the outcome of something, I'm at peace. And then the mind kicks back up and the ego's like, but I have to, I have to control it. I have to know where this is going. It's like, do you? Or do you just not know how to relate to what you can't control? Do you not know how to relate to the uncontrollable chaos in your life, the mystery? Because the truth is, whenever we put work out in the world, we don't know how it's going to be received. You know, I have a significant amount of anxiety about putting this podcast out because Rather than only share ideas I think are cool, I'm also sharing a bit of my own experience and my own difficulties to live at my highest level of knowledge. But still, you have to ask the question, are we here to control what we're not able to control because then it feels like we're playing a game that is unwinnable? So do we need to control or do we need to surrender into the adventure that is our life? The adventure that is unfolding in, through, and around us. Because I think that's one of the beautiful things that the spiritual path actually gives us, is the recognition, not that we have to make all of this happen, not that we have to be the arbiters or creators of our own reality, though I know that those schools of thought are out there, but maybe we're here to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And maybe in being part of this bigger unfolding, we become something more than ourselves.